Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Time for. Hello, listeners, and welcome to this really rather short episode of Underwood and Flinch. But why? Why short? Well, here's a question for you. How long is a chapter? How long is a podcast? These things don't have set lengths, do they? They can be, uh, you know, I've I've seen books by people like Stephen King where uh, a chapter was just a few sentences. And I've listened to podcasts that were five or even three minutes long. It depends on the content. It depends on what the, the author or the podcaster wants to communicate. And what I want to communicate in my chapter and in this podcast is only very short. So while some episodes might be up to an hour in length, this particular episode is considerably smaller. And in this short podcast, we're going to be catching up on the adventures of Inspector Claire Redmond. Now, you may remember the last time we saw Claire, she had found herself in the clutches of Lydia. And there's a few things I want to recap on before we go into this uh, chapter, just so you can remember what happened last time. Claire received a telephone call from someone claiming to be Jessie Collins, and she said that she was a friend of the woman who was the first victim to be found by the police in the skip in Camden. Now, she said she was with the victim when she was taken and that she was afraid for her life because she felt that the killer was now after her. Claire went to meet her in a pub in Whitechapel. When she got there, Jessie was nowhere to be seen, so Claire went to the bar with the intention of buying mineral water when she was approached by a woman who claimed to be Jessie's mother. The woman, who was later revealed to be Cynthia, took Claire upstairs where she was introduced to Jessie, who of course was Lydia. Lydia then mesmerised Claire and that's where we left the episode. This episode takes up the action on the next morning. Underwood and Flinch, Season 4, Underground, written and performed for podcast by Mike Bennett. This podcast is intended for an adult audience. Episode 8. The doors of the underground train opened to a wall of bodies. Faces looked out, seemingly impassive, 
but behind every nonchalant expression was a voice crying, There's no room, wait for the next one. Claire Redmond and all the other passengers on the platform knew both the expression and the voice. They'd all worn one and heard the other, times without number. But they also knew the next train would be exactly the same as this one. So Claire and her fellow boarders pushed into the wall of bodies, which parted for them as best they could. It was 8.30 in the morning, the height of rush hour. Claire eased herself into a sliver of space between anonymous arms and backs, chests and shoulders. The space widened just enough to accommodate her, and she reached up to take hold of the handrail. Like floor space, handrail space was at a premium, but other hands inched away to allow for hers. Then, as the shuffling compression of bodies slowly settled into its manifold compromises, the doors closed and the train moved away from the platform. Between the shoulders and heads of her fellow passengers, Claire saw the station name slide past the window. Whitechapel. She'd come here the previous evening to speak to someone, a woman who claimed to have been with the Camden victim on the night she'd been killed. Claire remembered she had gone to the hotel expecting to meet the contact immediately, but she hadn't been there, so she'd gone to the bar to order a drink. Wine, the word, came to her in place of a distinct memory. She'd had a glass of wine, and when it became apparent that the contact wasn't going to show... She decided to have dinner at the hotel and a few more glasses of wine. And then, then there was nothing, a void in her memory, like the space between pages torn from a book. She closed her eyes and tried to remember. She'd woken up in one of the hotel bedrooms, an empty white wine bottle on the bedside table, and beside it, a single glass with traces of her lipstick on the rim. She'd rented the room because she'd had too much to drink, and she'd had too much to drink because of the day she'd had. She'd been angry, upset. She hadn't meant to get drunk, but she had. It wasn't like her. She'd never done anything like that before. But then again... She'd never had a day quite like yesterday before either. She went back further, back to the beginning, going to the hotel. That was clear in her memory, looking around, going to the bar, a mineral water. She was going to buy a mineral water, but she must have changed her mind. But to say she remembered buying a glass of wine wasn't accurate. She knew she'd bought one, but she didn't actually remember it. That is, there was no sensory memory, nothing visual or olfactory. The fact of the drink was just there in her head, like something she'd learned from a book. It was the same with dinner. She knew she'd had dinner at the hotel, but what she'd actually eaten, try as she might, she simply couldn't recall. Thinking about it made her head spin. No, her head really was spinning. She felt dizzy, light-headed. Oh, my God, she thought. I'm going to faint. She opened her eyes and took a gasp of warm, rush-hour air. She'd never fainted in her life, and the thought of tumbling away to the floor of the train mortified her. 
She continued to breathe long and steady till gradually the world settled down around her. This is why you never drink more than a few glasses, she told herself. You always get a hangover if you go over three glasses of wine, but she touched her temple, seeking with her fingertips. There was no hangover, no headache anyway. The computerized announcer informed the train they were now approaching Old Gate East. A moment later, the train emerged into brightness and the shapes of waiting passengers blurred past the windows. A woman in front of Claire stood up to get off, and Claire sat down in her place before anyone else could. The train stopped. The press of bodies shifted, its composition changing as passengers alighted and boarded. Once all was settled again, the doors beeped their warning of closure, and then they were moving again. Staring at the back of the man in front of her, Claire went over again the events of that morning, retracing her steps down to the pub. She'd gone to the bar and asked for her bill, only to be told it had been paid. Another missing page in her memory. She'd asked the barman if there was anyone there that morning who had been on duty the night before, but there wasn't. He'd shown her the logbook in which her payment, in cash, had been registered. She'd then checked her bag, but found no receipt. She'd asked him for one, and a short while later he'd come back with one that confirmed her room had been paid for at 22.08 the night before. 22.08. Was that when she had gone to bed? Taking her bottle of wine and glass with her, assuming it had been for one, of course. But no, that had been one of the first things she'd thought of. She'd checked both the bedroom and bathroom to an almost forensic degree and there were no signs of anyone else having been there. Not that she would have taken anyone there, regardless of how much she might have drunk. There was no one, not even... The face of Guy Valentine rose in her mind. She grimaced. No, especially not him. Charming and handsome he may be, but the only thing she wanted from Valentine was her cases back. Then she remembered something else, a fragment of the dream she'd been having when she awoke that morning. Valentine, extending his hand to her, between his fingers, dripping with blood, his business card. She'd taken it. It was clean and dry, and on it was written not Valentine's name, but that of her father, Detective Harry Redmond, followed by the letters O.C.U., Beneath it, in italics, was written, It was real. There is no book. They're coming, Claire. She'd heard her father crying the words in her mind as she read them, as clear as they had been on the night that Coleridge and his men had taken him away. It was real. The occult crimes unit. It had been real then, and she felt sure it still was today, if not in name, than at least in function. Coleridge knew about it, of course. Most likely he was still involved. As soon as he discovered the nature of the murders yesterday, he'd put Valentine straight on them. Valentine had told her they had an incident room notice board at Falconbridge covered with the so-called serial killer's handiwork. But if her suspicions were correct, and there was, in fact, no serial killer, then Valentine and Coleridge were lying to her.
What they had at Falconbridge was evidence relating to other vampire murders, maybe the work of an individual, maybe the work of many, but not the work of a human. She felt a tingle on the skin of her neck just inside the collar of her shirt, and she massaged the spot with the tips of her fingers. She'd called DCI Valentine as soon as she got to the office and arranged a meeting with him. He'd told her to call him if anything else came to mind, and if this didn't count as something, what did? She closed her eyes, continuing to massage the spot on her neck and enjoying the sensation it gave her. She felt a dreaminess coming over her, probably the result of poor quality sleep. Whatever Valentine knew... She had to know, too. She had to be at the heart of the investigation because... You are my eyes and ears, said a voice in her mind that wasn't her own. A woman's voice, soft and close by. It reminded her of her mother's voice, comforting her as she had when she was a child. Kind, loving. Find out everything he knows, Claire. Whatever it takes, you are my eyes and ears. Claire took out her personal mobile phone and Valentine's card and began keying in his number. Everything you know, she whispered under the rumble of the train. Everything you know. And so... Claire Redmond has a hole in her memory where a voice that isn't her own seems to have taken root, a root that spreads and grows in the shadows of her mind. But to what sinister end? Join me next time for Season 4, Episode 10 of Underwood and Flinch. The music you're listening to is Ahmad Armour by Farid Fajar, courtesy of Taranay Records and our good friend Farwaz Al-Maloud. You can stream the track from Spotify, YouTube Music, Google Music and all the other streaming companies that are out there. And you can find a link to the track on Spotify at my website, mikebennettauthor.com. Well, there we are, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I hope you enjoyed that episode and that you will join me again next time for episode 10 of this story, which will continue Claire Redmond's day as she goes on to meet Guy Valentine and be, whether she knows it or not, the eyes and ears of Lydia Flinch. Until then, do have a fantastic week and I look forward to being in your ears again next Wednesday. Thank you for listening. And until the moon rises again over Underwood and Flinch, farewell.